Want a better way to hire? We asked businesses across Australia. We trialled Liam through Youth Jobs Path and then hired him as a design assistant. Liam is so keen to learn. He gets along with everyone and we get help with wage and training costs. Louise gave me a go and now I've got a job. Yeah, it worked for us. To find motivated young staff and get up to $10,000 in assistance, search Youth Jobs Path. Authorised by the Australian Government Canberra, spoken by Jay Green, L Nobes and L Nicolau. Hello, you're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan and I'm here with Global Markets and Economics correspondent David Scott. Fantastic to be back. Um, and our guest this week is none other than the Federal Treasurer, uh, Scott Morrison. Uh, Treasurer, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Paul and David. Great to be here. We're delighted um, to have you here. You know, people go on in markets and economic circles all the time about the importance of economic reform and political leadership. Uh, but now we're here with a man with his hands on the tiller, and we get to ask some questions about uh, some of the vital issues uh, facing the economy. Um, okay, so on the agenda, we're going to talk about the, uh, quickly about the ASX earlier this week, what happened there when the, when the market shut down. Uh, we might touch quickly as well um, on the ABS. They had some technical problems as well uh, recently um, and very visibly. Um, we'll talk a little bit about fintech policy in Australia, um, which the, the, um, the, the Treasurer has been uh, very supportive of uh, that sector. Um, and then we're going to look at some of the hard stuff, so central bank policy, um, some of the increasing focus in global markets on fiscal stimulus. Um, then there's um, household consumption, the low levels of wages growth that we're seeing in the economy, and we look at policy clarity for business, um, which is a big talking point. Um, but let's start with the big week. The ASX had a bit of a meltdown on Monday, um, most, much to the frustration of investors. Um, and I think also just something surprising to people more generally that a technology platform this big and important um, in today's world could simply fall over a treasure. You've been following this pretty closely, I understand. Well, yes. Uh, I mean, obviously ASIC will provide me with a, a thorough review into this and, and, and what has occurred. Obviously ASX is uh, its own entity and uh, Dominic and the team there, I'm sure, have been very busy. I mean, the gremlins have clearly been busy and they've been busy dealing with those gremlins. Um, this is this is something that occurs from time to time. We we don't want that to happen. Uh, but uh, it's been five years since we've had something like this happen, uh, and uh, so I think it's very important for the ASX to be very transparent about this and uh, and get things back on an, on, a, on an even curl, if if you like, uh, to resume normal transmission uh, as quickly as possible. But given that so many of our platforms these days, uh, whether it's the ASX and it's a clearinghouse there, or you know, banking platforms, or the various other ways in which we um, do business today, they all are heavily reliant on on the hardware, the software, the networks, um, the cloud, all the rest of it. And uh, um, you know, we, we, we need to understand that for, uh, this these uh, these systems are not uh, they're not impenetrable. They are not. Um, uh, completely and utterly faultless uh, and fail-safe. Mind you, they're significantly better uh, than what used to be done uh, by us mere humans. Um, and uh, so I, I think we've got to be careful not to judge too harshly on these things. But at the same time, uh, the demands for Australia as an investment destination, as a market, need that to work each time and every time. And I'm, I'm sure they're, they're right all over it. Yes, I think, uh, as you said, it's the uh, first time in five years. So that's uh, certainly uh, not uh, something that's a regular occurrence. And I think that looking at uh, some of the broker footage that we saw down at uh, Ryan's Bar uh, during the day, they seemed to be uh, fairly happy with what was going on anyway. So <laughs> we can take that at face value. 
Um, speaking about uh, meltdowns, uh, obviously we've looked at the, uh, the ABS uh, in depth here in, uh, in previous podcasts, particularly in relation to the census. Um, obviously people who listened to this program before have known about my uh, views about what happened with the census quite strongly. Um, but it's basically continuing a pattern that, uh, that those in financial markets have seen over recent years. Uh, I came from a, a markets background, a trading background. And when I first started out 15 odd years ago, there seemed to be a good reputation. The ABS was seen as a, a very good uh, moniker for what's going on in the economy. Uh, but recently, in, in recent years, uh, particularly around the jobs data, the jobs data has become, let's say, flimsy uh, in terms of what the, uh, what the actual output is, particularly the other uh, seasonally adjusted figures. Now, we've discussed previously on the program potentially a need to go and rework how the ABS has its funding mix and what it actually looks at and things along those lines. I was just going to check, is this on your radar and is this a consideration, any changes to the ABS, the funding mix, or potentially what they look at in terms of data? Well, first of all, on the employment data, there were those issues a while ago and they've been addressed and I think the series now is, is you know, back on track and we're pleased about that. Uh, with the census itself, um, the figures out today are showing that they, they should achieve, they're already at 95%, I think they'll get a bit higher than that uh, ultimately on the census, which will put it in line with where we got to last time. In fact, fewer people this time to refuse to participate uh, than last time. So look, when, when things happen like happened on census night, which should never have happened, I mean, the failure that occurred there on that night and uh, what the government was relying upon in terms of the service providers in this area and, uh, and the advice that we received from the ABS as well. I mean, we had specifically asked the questions about the redundancy and things like that as far back as February and got absolute assurances for that exact type of outcome. So you can imagine how impressed the Prime Minister and I were on that evening. Uh, but you know, when this happened, it then becomes about, well, how do you fix it? And I think over the last few months, getting the census back on track and getting the response rate back to where um, it needed to go. I mean, even with that, we will have almost doubled the level of un online completions from the last census. So that's, you know, that's, that's a good story, I think. It could have gone a lot better. Uh, but, you know, the recovery or the rebound, if you like, off, off the... Uh, off the first throw to the basket is, is how you put it in the second time and uh, I think you know, we showed a, a, an aptitude to, to deal with the problem, work it and, uh, and resolve it. Okay, it's fantastic. Like, I saw that 95% I think it was, uh, was completed the last I saw. But there's a general conception around the, uh, around the things I'm hearing. Now I'll give you an instance from my perspective uh, and this is maybe a small curveball but it's not, uh, this is just something where maybe I'm an anomaly. But I remember completing the census at, uh, before 7 o'clock. My partner and myself, when we completed it, we got a confirmation email saying it's been done, fantastic. And then in the subsequent weeks, I started receiving mails saying that you have not completed your census. So I'm not really sure what to go and make of that because I have a confirmation email saying you've done it, but then the system records say that I don't. So you can understand that there may be a little bit of concern about the, oh, uh, the, the, the reliability of the data? Well, no, well, I'm not worried about it. I mean, there's going to be an anomaly here and there. I mean, how many times have you bought you know, tickets to the movies online? How many times have you, you know, tried to get onto a server when you're getting tickets to a concert or football or things like this? I mean, I, I think there needs to be a bit of a reality check on this. There was also a lot of discussion about the security of data. Well, the ABS has an impeccable record on the security of data. And the reason they acted, as the Prime Minister said, with an abundance of caution on that night uh, was because the, the worst scenario in their view was that there had been a breach, which there wasn't, but they took uh, that conservative position on that basis. And they, I think you know, that was their, their primary reputation risk 
on that night, and they at least covered that off, but obviously on other matters, they'll be rebuilding. Um, let's move um, just on to um, fintech. Uh, certainly people in financial markets are watching all the developments here very closely. There's also investors, um, people with uh, capital um, who are looking around for places where they might get a very significant return um, by um, backing the right company at some point along the investment uh, pipeline. Um, now, you've been quite supportive of this sector. The government's been doing some very visible things. Um, I wanted to ask you, what has convinced you that, uh, about the potential for this area? Was there anything in particular, any company in particular, anything that you saw? Not really any one company, I mean, because I've seen quite a lot of them now. Uh, I was just at the launch of H2Ocean the other day, and uh, just another example of you know, the, a, a firm bringing together the capital to invest in all of these other ideas. Um, what has impressed me about it is its ability to be transformational for businesses more generally. Now, of course, the fintech sector will attract capital, there'll be jobs there, and that's all great. But I'm actually more interested in what those companies are producing and uh, what that means for their clients. I uh, had a, a meeting with all of the various small business organisations earlier in the year. There was about 40 of them around the room. And there was one fellow there who was from the ag sector. And... You know, he looked like he'd just walked straight off the farm. Um, and he was, he was a much older bloke too. And the last person in the room, and, was, you know, I, maybe says more about me, but um, he, I said, what do you think is going to be the real game changer for, for, for your businesses going forward? And he said, fintech. Uh, because he can see how that can change, uh, you know, lines of access to capital, how it can change how he does so many things within his business. And I think that's true for so many businesses around the country. I mean, fintech has the ability through what it produces to level the playing field for Australian businesses everywhere. And for us to be successful in fintech, we need to be creating a regulatory and policy environment which puts us up the top of the pack. Now, in places like Hong Kong, which I've visited, and Shanghai, they've, you know, they've been doing this for some time. But uh, in some places, they've been doing it a bit without a safety net um, on, on things for consumers. Now, we're taking those precautions. The UK got off to a pretty good start when George Osborne was treasurer, and I'm sure Phil Hammond will keep that going. And it's been my objective to, to put us right in the middle of that race and push towards the top of the pack. So we've got the regulatory sandbox, which is rolling out. Um, we've, we've made the changes uh, on, on the, uh, the venture partnerships funds, uh, which enables fintech companies to be recognised. Uh, we're also moving forward, which is a related issue on the crowdsource funding legislation. So we really are trying to make a point of difference, a point of advantage for Australia. Um, so, you know, our, our, our smart young things in their T-shirts, and <laughs> as they always seem to be, uh, um, you know, they're, they're doing really innovative stuff. And uh, it can really change how business operates in this country. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, we're in this building uh, here in Sydney with yeah, Stone, uh, and Stone and Chalk. chalk yeah. And, um, you know... Um, Sometimes you, you do see guys getting into the lift and they're wearing sort of MC Hammer pants. And, um, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I call uh, it my happy place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stone and Chalk's my happy place. Yeah, right, really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's such a... But it doesn't matter whether there or the others that are around it's here or elsewhere. That, that people are so positive and so enthusiastic and, you know, they're just getting on with it. And that, I think that is a good example for the rest of the country, frankly. If you've ever heard their parties on a Friday night, uh, it's only about four o'clock and you can see why they're so happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, just one quick, one quick thing, though. Is there a bit of a um, regulatory or sort of um, broader systemic balancing act to be achieved here? Because With fintech? Yeah, yes, there is. The, the, a lot of these companies, and um, the banks are very alert now to 
what's happening in this sector. Um, they're hiring people. They're acquiring companies. Well, they're disrupting themselves. That's right. Um, so um, there's an awful lot at stake, and there's some of these companies who would make no secret of the fact that they're out to uh, really go after the banking sector and a stable, um, uh, you know, a strong Australian banking system is an has been an absolute pillar of um, Australia's economic strength. Yeah. So how do you think about that? Well, I, I, I don't see them as not being complementary. I think they're completely complementary. I mean, competition in any sphere of the economy is a good thing. And we do have four very big banks, uh, very successful banks, very profitable banks. And, uh, you know, at the time of the, the GFC, thank goodness, uh, because that was the primary factor, in my view, which saw us um, come through uh, the GFC. And we need to ensure we maintain that resilience going forward and continue to improve on it. And, and we have been doing that. And uh, whether it's with APRA or others, um, we've been making, I think, really strong gains. And I'd argue we're, we have the... I, I would argue we've got the best banking and financial system in the world. That's why I get a little troubled when people start playing politics with the banking and financial system and seeking to undermine public confidence in it. And what's worse, when we're overseas and you have people come up to you and when you know we have others saying, oh, there should be a royal commission in the banking industry. Now, we have overseas um, agencies, uh, governments or others coming to us in banks and saying, what's wrong with Australia's banking and financial system? Now, that, that, is, that is not good. And there's nothing wrong with Australia's banking and financial system. So why we would be so reckless to allow, I, I think, that to undermine that confidence is, is um, very concerning. So the government will maintain our position on that. Now, uh, you, you mentioned more broadly about the disruptive way that banks are trying to do that for themselves. Now, that competition, I think, in fintech will get the same response out of the banks. So the fintech companies doing what they're doing will force the sort of focus on the customer which is coming from the banks. And that needs to continue. The pressure, the tension in the cord must be there. And I think fintech does that, but it needs a regulatory environment which lets them do that. Now, there are many um, fintech startups who their dream is come up with a great idea, get it running, and then get bought <laughs> by someone. That's their great dream, and then they go surfing or whatever they want to do. Good for them. Good for them. Uh, and there, but there are others uh, who see themselves in a, a completely different space. You know, fifty million dollar company, hundred million dollar company. You know, or around bigger. the world, or bigger, or bigger. And we've got examples of that. So, I just think it's one off, if not the most exciting sectors in the economy today, and I think will be for, some, for the foreseeable future. Let's go from... Uh, and we're good at it. <laughs> yes, we are. We are. Um, and I think um, what some of the things that have been achieved um, in that sector over the past um, 24 months, just looking back, have been uh, remarkable. Um, okay, um, let's go from uh, the small one-person uh, company started from a, um, if that's in a lounge room somewhere, out to um, the very, very big picture, um, central banks, right? Beast of an issue um, affecting global and domestic demand levels, and therefore revenue and expenditure uh, trajectories for you, Treasurer. Um, so, um, David, maybe you can just quickly uh, talk about uh, another very interesting week in central banking world. Yes, made the uh, step from micro to macro in uh, one leap. Um, yeah, it's been a very interesting week for central banks. Uh, you know, stepped off a plane from Singapore after watching my man Daniel Ricciardo come second in the uh, GP, and then straight into a... Uh, Probably the two biggest uh, central bank policy decisions we've had so far this year. Obviously, the last 24 hours, we've seen the Bank of Japan, the U.S. Federal Reserve, and this morning, the RBNZ. Um, look, there's no, no real great surprises in the Fed and the RBNZ from a market perspective, from my opinion, what I saw. Uh, the Fed, 
have been overly optimistic uh, in their assessment as where interest rates were heading. That's now coming back down to where market expectations are. We saw that last night. The US dollar softened again, probably much the disgust of, uh, of some people. And the Aussie dollar shot up. The, uh, the big talking point was the Bank of Japan. Uh, that was yesterday after a prolonged period of, uh, of waiting for the announcement. Um, and so instead of, uh, instead of targeting uh, you know, an annual target, they're going to increase their monetary base. They're now looking to go and target interest rate levels and anchoring that by using short-term interest rates and then bond buying further out the curve. Um, for all of its, uh, its, its change in mechanism and the like, realistically, they're still buying bonds and they've still uh, got negative interest rates. So um, the Bank of Japan has got an uphill battle uh, in my perspective, but uh, no, they're trying something different, which at least is uh, you know, something that's not in the past. So, Treasurer, one of um, really the, 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 the big talking points of this is, I mean, this has maybe started with the Bank of Japan's long experiment with, um, you know, adjusting its monetary policy to try and stimulate the economy, um, deliver inflation in particular. Um, lately, the conversation has really started to look back on the need for maybe fiscal stimulus, that monetary policy... Um, may not be effective. Now, Australia is an incredibly lucky position in this, right? GDP growth um, at a remarkable 3 plus percent, right? And rates still comparatively a long, long way from zero. Um, but do you accept that the world's exper uh, um, experiment with this, with un unorthodox monetary policy, um, appears to be lo a losing purchase? Um, and um, that the focus needs maybe to come back on what governments can do um, to ensure consumers are out there spending and that businesses are investing. Well, I, I, and I've said this recently myself, I do think uh, monetary policy has been exhausting itself now for some time. Uh, Glenn Stevens has many great lines um, from his time as governor, but pushing against the string, which wasn't an original, but it's, it's, it's um, I think sums up where you know some of the elements of monetary policy is today. I'm always surprised, well, not surprised, but I'm always observant when I go to the G20 meetings with, with the bank and we meet with our counterparts and the discussion is so focused on what central banks are doing and what fiscal stimulus is doing. But that's actually, in my view, not the issue. The issue is a chronic problem with private investment in all of these economies. I mean, when you've got a situation uh, today where someone thinks it's a, a better and safer idea to give the German government their money for 10 years and get it back and pay for the privilege, and that's a better option than investing something that's actually going to do something. Well, I think that says a lot about where private capital is. And I think our challenge, and, and, and the Prime Minister and I have been quite active in these forums, saying, guys, what we all have to do is get private investment active again and, and moving in our economies. And that's why we took the enterprise tax plan to the last election. Whether it's on tax or other issues, we've, we've got to get capital out of its cave, not just in Australia. Um, I mean, we're going through the transition off the back of the mining investment boom into where we're heading now, and that's, that transition has, has been remarkably successful. And we need to keep that going. But um, one of the consequences of moving through that transition is you'll see mining investment naturally significantly um, uh, turned down. And you will see elements of non-mining investment also turned down because it's linked, in, particularly in the, in the resource states, to that mining investment. But then you've got to see the flowers bloom on, on, on the other parts of the economy. Now, we are seeing that, particularly on, on the East Coast, uh, and we are seeing it in service sectors. We are seeing it, we're talking about one before, in fintech and financial services. All that's great. But we've got to have a private capital-led recovery 
not a taxpayer-led recovery because, you know, if governments borrow more money or spend more money, there's only one rule. You've got to pay it back or you've got to raise taxes. Now, I think both of these things, higher debt and higher taxes, is, is an anathema to an economy that you want to see grow and where you want to see real wages increase uh, and where you want to see profits grow. I mean, that's the real challenge we've got at the moment. Um, yes, we've had 3.3% through the year growth. Uh, yes, for the first time in two years, we've seen nominal growth just, just clip over the top of, of real growth. But real wages growth is still at, you know, at half of what it used to be. And company profits are, are we had an uptick in the last quarter, but you know, they're pretty soft. Uh, terms of trade ticked up a bit too. Oh, welcome all of that, but there's a long way to go here. And I've talked about this earnings problem we have as a country. And I, I want to see Australians, householders, businesses, I want to see them all earn more. Earn more in wages, earn more in profits, earn more in what they're selling um, for the prices they're able to get. Um, that is what will, I think, position our economy going forward. Uh, and the idea of fiscal stimulus or monetary stimulus being you know, the silver bullet here, I, I think, has been proven not to be the case. All that does is largely either fill a hole or drag things forward. Um, it doesn't necessarily create something. The thing about private capital is it creates things. There was um, a, just in terms of wild ideas, we reported recently on um, um, a, a strategist at uh, Macquarie based in Hong Kong who, um, who thinks that um, building a, a starting a Mars colonization program would be something that would <laughs> soak up some of the capital that's looking for a home. Um, well, so a lot of these projects, when they get into fiscal stimulus, have real hairs on them. I mean, if you go back and look at the, at the money that was spent during the GFC. And the reason we have the debt we have today, you can ascribe to those decisions. And uh, the GFC was a financial crisis. It wasn't necessarily an economic crisis. It was a financial crisis. And our banks weathered it, uh, but the government blew the bank balance. And now we are in this constrained environment with low nominal growth. We're not seeing the sort of revenue pour in like it did previously. It doesn't mean we've got a revenue problem, it's mean we've got an earnings problem. There's been a fair bit of discussion about my distinction between those. A revenue problem is where the tax regime you apply on the country's income you don't think is extracting enough. Now, I don't share that view. I think it's extracting more than enough. An earnings problem is, is all about the denominator, <laughs> and you want that to be bigger. And the way you get that, microeconomic form, tax reform, all of these um, you know, competition reforms, things like that, that's what will drive increases in earnings, real wages and profits. I think anyone who's had a look at the terms of trade chart can now sympathise with the opposition. Uh, in some respects, that uh, explains a, a great deal of why the uh, national incomes have uh, been so slow compared to what they've been in the past. Yeah. I mean, it was a bit like during the, the mining investment boom um, on earnings, and particularly on wage, real wages. It was like getting a bonus every year. And it was actually a bonus. I mean, it was, they were unreal incomes that were sitting around in terms of trade and commodity prices. And then they happened so often they became assumed into the base wage, effectively. That's right. Behavioural economists would talk about this as anchoring, so we're sort of, yeah, you refer back to that period as... And then, but it's, we're past that phase now. And, uh, and so I think that's one of the points I'm trying to make. Why do people feel, we, you know, one of the, we are leading the world on advanced economy growth. Uh, so why don't people feel more engaged and linked into that? And I think the, the earning story has a lot to do with that. Uh, cost of living pressures, as we know, on inflation, rates are low, all of that, uh, you know, much lower than they were five, six years ago. But 
people's earnings aren't growing as much. And when your earnings are growing, I think you feel more confident about what you can do, how you can plan, and all of that. So that, that is really where the Prime Minister and my focus is. Um, just quickly, um, you mentioned Glenn Stevens, and one of the warnings, I think um, it was his, uh, one of his last uh, major speeches as governor, um, where he talked about, you know, we're kidding ourselves if we don't sort of tackle these, um, some of the issues that we have uh, from a fiscal perspective and an economic perspective. Uh, policy reform perspective. So after 25 years now without a technical recession, right, do you think there's a risk? Um, and it's part of it is that, that this anchoring thing that was, the, the country has become accustomed to um, a certain level of growth. Um, and there's, there are large swathes of the voting and working public um, who haven't worked uh, and lived through a really significant downturn. Um, do you think there's a bit of a risk in that? Of course there is. I think there is the great risk of complacency uh, setting in about our economic prospects and that it will all just keep turning up every year and that you don't have to do anything to, to keep it turning up every year. Uh, that's as true. Uh, I mean, I, I know businesses that don't think like that. They don't think the customers are just going to keep walking in the door and they can all take a holiday. And, and governments and, and our population can't think the same thing about our economy. It, you, you need to keep working it all the time. And I suppose the challenge for us as a government is when you see growth figures like we're seeing, but also knowing the need to d address serious issues around the debt. Now, we, we need to arrest the debt to improve our, fiscal, our economic and financial resilience. And we've got the next five years or so to get that sorted. Now, I suspect over the next five years, as I said in the speech I gave to Bloomberg a little while ago, um, what's happening in China, no one really knows ultimately what, what the risk profile there is going to be, but I tried to, I mean, I'm, I'm an optimist about China, but at the same time, I'm, I'm not naive about the potential risks that are there, and our economy is heavily linked to its performance and, and uh, what its uh, SOEs are doing and where they're investing and what they're buying from us and all the rest of it. But I, we're not ex anticipating any real great change in that, that scene for the next three to five years. So we should take that as an opportunity. We've got three to five years to go and get this sorted. And that means making the changes we need to in the budget, uh, paying, getting the debt under control. At the moment, it's continuing to, 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 to increase because we've still in, got a deficit. Uh, we get back into balance and then we start the long haul of, of paying down the debt. Um, and that's what our plan is. But it's hard to make that case when you grow, your economy is growing at 3.3%. So, and as you say, um, if you're 25 in this country, you've never lived through um, a, a recession. Just going back to the other uh, complacency idea, I think that there's, there's certainly signs that there's, there's, from my perspective, there's not complacency. One thing is, is market is the, uh, is the savings ratio. Uh, household savings ratio has been elevated for some period of time now since the GFC. People have been saving rather than spending. And it probably goes back to what we saw with the other uh, private capital expenditure. Uh, there's an unease, it seems to be, about potentially what may occur in the future rather than what, uh, what, what is actually happening now. Uh, that's the impression I get from that. It just seems to be a whole lot of caution going back to bond yields as well. You know, the reason bond yields are so low and people are willing to go and invest for 10 years to go and get back exactly the same amount in nominal terms, not real terms, uh, I think there's a real sort of unease about what's going on, whether rightly or wrongly. Yeah, well, look, um, savings rates came down a little bit lately um, and uh, I think that was very much about keeping pace with consumption and consumption over the past year, 2.9%, uh, um, that's still below long-term trend, but it, in 
this environment, not bad. Um, and let's not forget that the single biggest contributor to our 25 years of growth is household consumption. It, that, that is what has been the mainstay. I mean, you look at exports, imports, um, that nets out pretty much at, at the line. I mean, it phases over that period of time. It was higher and lower, but over the 25 years, it pretty much netted itself out. Uh, but the real um, driver of that story was household consumption, and that says a lot about, I think, the economic resilience and confidence of Australians. Um, and, you know, we saw in the most recent figures the household consumption contribution drop down to 0.2, up from, down from 0.4, which is also a bit down from where it was before. With, in the latest figures, the savings ratio went back to a constant rather than dropping, which I think we've just got to be mindful of looking at those numbers and saying, well, we want people to remain, be, remain confident. Um, household uh, and consumer sentiment on, you know, the surveys are up about 9% on, on a year ago. That's good. Um, you know, the one I like is I mean, the Westpac one, which is, you know, we've got more optimists than pessimists. Well, right now we've got more optimists, uh, and that's great. Uh, and we've seen that a bit more often over the last 12 months, which I think is really good. So confidence in where people see the economy going, that is really what's important. They need to know the government does have a plan and is across the issues and knows the things you've got to manage. And that's what the Prime Minister and I are very focused on. Now, you know, people took the mickey out us a bit about jobs and growth. Um, well, we do have a jet plan. I haven't heard those three words for, for <laughs> a long time. We, we do have that plan, and I think people that's what people want. I mean, jobs and growth. There's been more of both in the last 12 months. Um, both of those are up. 200,000 jobs or thereabouts over the last 12 months, and growth of 3.3% you know, through the year. So um, forgive us for talking about the things people want to see achieved, particularly when we're achieving them. So big factor for um, uh, consumption growth is, is, is wages growth. Um, uh, you know, uh, people will be looking around at, um, you know, people are not basically going to be expecting very significant pay rises this year. Businesses are going to be looking at the inflation outlook saying maybe it's 1% to 2%, um, so that's what I'm going to budget for wages-wise, um, that message gets through to people in their workplaces, um, and it also flows through to their household budgets. Um, so um, even with the very low rates of inflation that we're seeing in you private wages growth at sort of 2%, um, you know, it's hard for people to feel like they're getting ahead. Um, so how can you, uh, how, w what role can um, economic policy and what can the government do to move the dial on this? Because it's obviously very important for helping to really continue driving that, um, uh, that, that level of economic activity that we've uh, seen over the last uh, couple of years? Well, I th look, I think the only way Australians are going to earn more is if companies earn more. That's what it boils down to. And if companies are earning more because they're innovating, they're developing new products, accessing new markets, paying less tax, um, you know, engaging in more productive uh, operations in their own enterprises, uh, um, investing in, in new lines and all that sort of thing, that, that's where the higher real wages comes from. It doesn't come from a union. Um, what it comes from is a business that is going to be successful. And as a government, that's very much what we're focused on trying to do. Um, our enterprise tax plan, be, uh, I mean, I, I want to see the whole lot of it um, legislated because I think it will have a positive impact on investment. But let's just take the first stage of it for companies between 2 and 10 million. Uh, which in this parliament. Yeah, that, I, I introduced that uh, a couple of weeks ago. That's for all, I, I introduced it all the way to 25 over the next 20, 10 years. But let's just focus on the first tranche of that. I mean, there are 100,000 businesses that fall into that category. They employ, on average, about 22 people each. Uh, they don't do huge distributions, if at all. Anything extra they earn, they put back into the business. And as I've gone around and spent a lot of time with these businesses, 
you know, if they're at two million, they want to be at five. If they're at five, they want to be at ten. If they're at ten, they want to be at twenty. And that's why we we changed the way that the the tax system would would evolve by doing it on the basis of turnover. And so we went from two to ten to twenty five to fifty to a hundred. And what we said is we want all businesses to get bigger, unless you you know whatever you know if you, if you want to stay where you are and you've got a nice little earner and it's just you and you're happy with that. Well, good for you. But for those businesses, I mean, those businesses doing that is what where the growth comes from, and we want them to be looking in new sectors like in human services and health and and these new in education and aged care and caring and more generally, I mean, these are um, services to, to, to older Australians. I mean, these are these are growth industries, not just in this country, but there is not a developed country in the world that doesn't have the same ageing of population demographics that we do. And you mentioned one is far more advanced than ours on that front in Japan. Um, in China, um, on the free trade agreement, we can now set up aged care facilities in China. Couldn't do that before the chapter. Uh, us getting into those sorts of service areas based on hard-won experience here in Australia with the skills, and then you go into training, uh, other, other companies overseas or other places, you know, the, the possibilities are significant. So we want to earn more, we've got to earn more. <laughs> Um, you, you, you talked about, you know, speaking to the importance of confidence and, you know, household confidence, consumer confidence, business confidence. I think um, there is, when you look back over um, both the Westpac and the ANZ Roy Morgan series, there was this GFC-like dip in confidence um, from uh, the 2014 budget. And I think one of the very clear um, lessons from that was... Um, that community perceptions of widespread welfare cutbacks, um, uh, the impact that that can have on what, what people think is coming down the track. Now, the government is now talking um, about um, uh, some uh, a pretty significant program um, to tackle welfare dependency. Um, this is an area, obviously, that um, you've been through in, in terms of your, your portfolio experience in the past. Um, but um, are you have you... Taken, are you mindful of the anxiety that this kind of um, uh, debate can stir in the community? And um, are you, oh, have you learned totally lessons? I bit at the pointy end of it as the Minister for Social Services and when we kicked off this investment approach, which is you know, based uh, in, entirely uh, on, on, a, on a data-led method of you know, an actuarial analysis of what the, the populations will do and who are, the, who are the people who are most at risk at critical points in their life of, of clipping over, hitting over a tipping point, and where they might have only been on welfare for a couple of years, end up being on welfare for 40. Well, apparently one of them, it turns out, was just having a lark, I found out, um, because I, I went and looked into it. Well, <laughs> one of them was just supporting their friend. But anyway, there we go. But look, what the agenda we're based on, what the agenda we're working can, on... Can you explain that? So, so one of them is... One of them is working at McDonald's. Is rigidage, you know, um, yeah. And the other one is working at The other McDonald's. one has been working at McDonald's for seven months. So, you know, <laughs> who, who knows? Uh, but look, the point about this approach is, is it's actually about participation. When you go back and look at um, what happened with the working age population... Uh, receiving transfer payments under the Howard government, you would have seen a massive drop. And at the same time, you would have seen a very significant increase in the working age population actually working. So this is why I talk about the best form of welfare is a job. I mean, yes, you can, you can 
improve uh, the, um, you know, the way entitlements are assessed and eligibility and you can tighten up how it works and make sure it's more fit for purpose and you've got to do all of those things. But the real thing you want to do, if you really want to get your welfare budget under control, you need to make sure people don't end up in it. Uh, and th that is what this approach is, is all about. And that's where they've had a lot of success in New Zealand. They go and find these quite specific cohorts which have incredibly high risk of lifefare, lifetime welfare dependency. And you go and get engaged with them in a very specific way. And when we're talking about groups of people, they're about like four and a half thousand. So you can get pretty specific with some of these groups. And one of the groups which we've identified is young carers. And, uh, and so these are young people who are on a carer's allowance. They're looking after maybe a parent or, or you know, um, a grandparent or something like that. And they're on an allowance. And a big chunk of their life is obviously taken up in that role. And then post-caring, they can't get a job. And if we can get those people and transition them through their caring experience into work, well, that is a, that is a significant achievement. And the best outcome for that is for that young person. And yes, there's a, a budget impact of that, sure. But if you get the welfare system to do its job, which is actually to get people off it, um, rather than just having it just there as, a, as just of a warm, comfy feeling, uh, then, I mean, that will always be necessary for a certain group in the community who will always be dependent. And that's what the social safety net is all about. And all Australians, I think, genuinely appreciate that. But for the rest who come in and out of it, uh, the more time they can spend out of it for a, a good reason, uh, i.e. they've got something better, great. This will no doubt help your task. I was just going to ask you about, uh, obviously, we've seen the unemployment rate was stabilised around about 5.6%. Uh, it fell due to the decline in participation, as we were just, uh, just discussing. Um, but outside of the unemployment rate, underemployment, uh, those looking who are willing and able to go and work more hours, that actually hit the highest level on record, according to the ABS data, uh, last month. Uh, and that took the underutilisation rate to 14.3%, which is still very elevated. Is there any, any way to go and spur that and get that actually lower? Because obviously unemployment is trending lower, but those people who want to work more at this stage are struggling to go and find that work. Well, it's the same answer to the question you asked me before about how do people earn more? Um, it's when business has got more for them to do um, and when there are more hours th that are there. Now, that is a better problem to have than an unemployment rate at 8 or 9%. Uh, and as the banks particularly will tell you when they, when they look at the health of the economy and particularly their loan book, one of their key statistics is the unemployment rate. So while previously you might have had someone driving a truck up in the mines and earning $180,000 a year, and now they're driving a bus in Perth at $80,000 a year, they, they're employed, and, uh, but obviously not earning what they were before. You have someone who was working 45 hours a week and now is working 30 hours a week. They'd like to be probably earning, working 38. Well, that is where the spare capacity is in the economy, and, and that's where we do would like to see that fill out. But I'd, I'd give this one caution on the um, part-time uh, job numbers. Uh, Labor have been quite dismissive of, of part-time jobs. While, of course, there are some who would rather be in a full-time job, I don't disagree with that, but many part-time jobs are taken up by people, particularly women, coming back into the workforce, coming back out of you know, having kids or... Um, you know, we were talking about carers before, you know, um, people coming and easing themselves back in the workforce. Also um, elderly people as Elderly people, is. exactly. So it, I think what we're also seeing in these part-time employment figures is a change in our labour market and a change in our economy where you know, things like job sharing and all those sorts of things seem to 
you know, a bit uh, adventurous 20 years ago. Well, they actually happen now and they actually work and people have worked out how to make them work, which gives them more flexibility. And having more flexibility to manage home, you know, work, commitments, kids, family, well, good. And so I, I'm not dismissive of part-time jobs at all. Um, in my view, a job is a job and that's good. Yes, yeah, of course. The, uh, the, the stat that always gets rolled out is the one-hour one unpaid per week makes you a part-time worker. But, of course, you've got to go and look at the, uh, the actual length as well. Uh, I think it encompasses, um, correct me if I'm wrong if you know the answer, but I think it's up to like 35 hours or 30 hours can be classified as a part-time role. So that's really nothing to go and scoff at in terms, you know, that's, that's a, in essence a full-time job in 2016. Well, that's the job that's helping pay the mortgage. That's the job that's helped putting your kids, you know, in that um, um, independent school. Uh, that's the job that's, uh, you know, help pay for the holiday um, at the caravan park, um, you know, at the holiday park over the summer. Uh, and that, that's quality of life for Australians, so I'm not going to dismiss it. Um, I want to quickly touch on the housing market. Everybody, you know, Australians love this. Um, uh, do you still see risks there? Um, obviously, um, you know, we've got this very heavy level of um, uh, foreign investment. Um, the government has um, been um, tightening its... Uh, uh, it's uh, just monitoring, policing this more more carefully. Um, you announced, you know, a whole series of um, for sales um, earlier this week. Um, but do you still see risks uh, there? Um, obviously, some parts of the housing market are very, very hot. Yeah, well, there's no one housing market in Australia. I mean, there's, there, are, there are multiple housing markets in Australia, and I think it's very important not to generalise in this area. And when you're looking at policy at a national level, you've got to appreciate that, you know, the policy is going to fall on the fair ground and the foul. Uh, and uh, so, you know, APRA, I think, has taken a good initiative some years ago, and we've seen uh, investor uh, credit growth go into negative, and we've seen some, you know, correction there uh, from what I would, would have described as, as a moderate policy intervention. Um, Owner-occupier credit growth is sort of you know close you know close to the mark. Uh, we've seen some of the real hot elements of the market come out, uh, but then when you look under the figures and you look at what's happening in apartment markets in Brisbane and Melbourne, there are some worrying signs there. Uh, and in in the West, you know people know what's happening to their house prices. Uh, in Sydney and Melbourne, more generally, though, well, it's you know it's sort of ever been thus, and it's very difficult for young people to save for that first. Um, deposit in, in those markets. So th there are many different stories in the housing market and that's why I think you've got to be very careful with national, particularly um, uh, national f um, credit orientated um, solutions to this because it's going to impact differently on different markets. Now the one that has obviously came up at the last election was the, the abolition of neg negative gearing. Now it actually wasn't that because it was only abolition for, of negative gearing for people who were negative gearing with a wage. If you had investment income, which would automatically put you in the higher income category, uh, you can carry on your merry way on, on uh, negative gearing on what was put forward by the Labor Party. Um, what we know is, is that uh, negative gearing provides a, a genuine and real wealth uh, creation opportunity for middle income people and has, always has in this country. We don't have the big institutional involvement in our residential real estate markets like they do in Europe or, 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 the, or the UK. It, our, our, you know, the people who own the rental properties are mums and dads in this country. They're, they're not large REITs and things like that. So the, the supply of capital to the, to the rental market in this country is really important. Now, if you take a sledgehammer to that, now let's just look at what happened with the APRA change. It, it was a modest intervention in the market. 
and you know people even some people today are going gee that really did have quite a big impact on on LVRs that because you know, the banks have then gone a bit further uh, could you imagine if they went and did that to negative gearing what that would mean to the real estate market in Australia and if that were to happen what do you think that would do to consumer confidence in the country principal driver of consumer confidence in this country has always been what's the value of your house. Just very quickly, on the, uh, the housing market and the, the loan side of things, so just to get your take, uh, a lot of uh, lenders went and reclassified loans that were previously deemed to be for investors to own occupiers in response to that policy change. Uh, at the RBA has gone and, and, and touched on it in their, uh, their credit figures that they get released monthly. Uh, just is there, is there a take that you have on that in relation to, you know, because all of a sudden, since, since you've said that uh, you know, annual rates of uh, investor lending have gone into negative territory, as soon as that's happened, we're now seeing this magical spike that's come back up and there actually isn't no signs that there's investor lending back in the market. Is there anything that uh, you can add on that? Uh, just to say what I just said, I mean, I think we've seen the heat come off on the investor side of things. I mean, when, when, when rates are this low, I think banks do have to be careful about how they lend. I mean, people can take on commitments which at low rates they can manage, but at higher rates, I th you know, I think everyone, the consensus is that low rates are around for a while. But nevertheless, it's still a debt. <laughs> it's still a debt. It's not free money. And I think banks, where, when, when rates are so low, um, what their lending practices are, are, are arguably even more important. Um, and I think there is issues around financial literacy around some of these issues. Now, there have been a lot of changes around credit cards and things like that, which I think have been very positive in protecting people from getting into things that um, they otherwise shouldn't. Um, I mean, we've got these issues around settlements on, uh, on off-the-plan apartments in a number of cities, and we're going to have to watch that one carefully. Um, but uh, let's hope that people haven't got themselves into a situation where there's too big a bridge uh, to, that they'll have to fill in order to, to complete on those those transactions. Um, I, I'm, I still remain optimistic about that. And you've got others like um, Merritt and, and people like that who, you know, they'll just sit on them <laughs> and uh, sell them later. Um, so anyway, look, the real estate market is a is a you know a wide and varying beast, and uh, and I think to make sort of general comments on it is uh, belies that. And uh, you know, our policies when it comes to housing, are about, a f about supply, uh, regulation, zoning, diversity of product, um, surety around lending practices, and, and you know, it's a real estate market. <laughs> a market. <laughs> we're um, we're going to wrap it up because we've gone a little bit over time, and I really appreciate this, Treasurer. It's been a, fa a fascinating conversation. Most importantly, um, the Mighty Sharks. Um, we're at the business end of the, um, of the footy season, um, and uh, exciting times for uh, Cronulla. It is, and particularly for the local community. I mean, the kids are excited. People are wearing their shark colours. People are putting it up in the shops. And my office is pretty decked out down there at the moment as well, um, you know, trying to ginger up everyone else to do the same. So, look, it's, it's, it's a very exciting time. And the, and, but, I, you know, the guys, we don't put too much pressure on them. Uh, we haven't had a great history in finals <laughs> going back over the last 50 years, so we don't want to, we don't want to put a hex on them. But um, they, they really have done extraordinarily well this year. And it's not just been um, Flano and, and the team. It's The club has been well run, too, um, with, with Damien and uh, Keo and uh, Lyle Gorman. There's a very good, strong management of our club. Uh, and uh, I think you know, when things are right off the field, things can go right on the field. And I think there's been a lot of that. They've had a couple of things this year. But um, 
you know, I'm just looking forward to Friday night. I'm going to shout myself hoarse uh, and uh, hopefully we'll come away um, for our first grand final in a very, very <laughs> long time. For NRL, we've had more consecutive years of, of economic growth than we have had years since the Sharks were last in an NRL. We were in the Super League one, but you know, a lot of people will say that doesn't count. You've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I've uh, been here with David Scott. Fantastic. See you again. Uh, and Treasurer Scott Morrison has been our guest. Uh, thanks very much, Treasurer, for coming on the show. Maybe we'll get you back maybe around May next year because um, there's probably sure. going to be a few things to talk about. Excellent. Good to be with you. Go the Sharks. Go the Sharks. Uh, I'm Paul Colgan. This show is produced by uh, Josh Nicholas. You can find us on iTunes where you can rate us and leave us a review and on the web at businessinsider.com.au. Thanks. Bye. Today's episode was delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business, helping you save time and money. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when you send on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.